Thank you, Nitha. Good morning, church family. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we have just sung beautiful songs in praise of you. We've just heard a beautiful psalm that has been read. Lord, you are so worthy of our praise. You are so worthy of all glory and honor. Lord, I pray right now that as we open your word that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would give us a greater glimpse, glimpse of your, your relentless loving kindness uh, towards us, uh, your power, your protection over us, your ability to provide for us in difficult and challenging circumstances. Lord, I pray that you would fill up our hearts, Lord, with truth about all that you are so that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths would praise you, our minds would, would delight in you, and that our lives would reflect you. And so, Lord, we pray for your guidance and your grace now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the title for today's message is Under the Shadow of Your Wings, uh, taken right there from verse 1 of Psalm 57. God does not have, have wings. Uh, Psalm 57 is, uh, is a poem, and this is a, a metaphor that uh, David uses to describe who he is trusting in. As you noticed, as Anitha was, was reading um, the introductory notes to the psalm, which are part of the inspired text, it says that David wrote this psalm in a cave. It says right, right there, right before verse 1, it says, when David fled from Saul in the cave. It starts with him in a cave, and then look at verse 11. Look where this psalm ends. Verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heaven." Let your glory be over all the earth. How, how can you go from being in a dark, cramped space like a cave? Nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, you can't see anything. And then how can you be in that kind of a place and then end up above the heavens, over all of the earth? That place is found in the shadow of God's wings. When we trust in God, when we find our security and our protection in God, he can take us from a cave, from a pit, from a dark and cramped place where it seems like we have no options and nowhere to go, and he can lift us up above the heavens. There's some familiar terms in these introductory notes as we get started. It says it was written to the choir master. That's like the, the, the worship leader, the musicians who are going to set this song to music. It says that it was a, a mictum. Uh, we mentioned last week that we're now in the mictum section. Psalm 56 through Psalm 60, this is the mictum section. All of the psalms have uh, this mictum as a part of its title. We don't know exactly what mictum means. The best guess is the Akkadian word. The Akkadian language is very close to the Hebrew language. And uh, the, the, there's, a, there's an Akkadian word that means cover. These are all times where David was undercover. The closest Hebrew word that sounds like mictum is the word for engrave. And so some scholars believe that while David was in the cave, he engraved the words of these psalms uh, in, in the cave, that these are uh, engraving psalms or, or undercover psalms. 
The one thing that's unique here is the information that David was living in a cave. He was fleeing from Saul. And also notice that it says that this, this song was, <clears throat> was written according to do not destroy. According to do not destroy. Now that according to normally means it's referring to a melody. And uh, Psalm uh, 56, uh, sorry, so Psalm 57 along with 58 and 59 are all written to this melody, this melody or this theme of do not destroy. Where does that come from? Well, one of the times when David was continually running from Saul, Saul came right into the cave. You remember that story? David's in the cave and Saul came in the cave. David didn't know that David was, or Saul didn't know that David was in there. And rather than taking vengeance on Saul, David just cut a little piece of his robe off. <clears throat> then another time, uh, David was, was very, very close to Saul's camp and Saul didn't realize it. And Saul was surrounded by all his soldiers and all his guards and Saul's there sleeping. And David and his nephew Abishai go into the camp of Saul. Now, Abishai, David's nephew, was one of the most bloodthirsty characters in all of, all of the Bible. This is, this is the conversation that happens between David and Abishai. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. So Abishai, he's just bloodthirsty. He wants to kill Saul so bad. They've all been running. They've all been fugitives. And Abishai is just like, I, just, I promise I'll only stab him once, okay? I don't have to hack him to pieces. I'm just going to pin him to the ground with one strike. Notice how Abishai also tries to spiritualize things. Oh, the Lord has done this. But look at what David says. David said to Abishai, see the words? Do not destroy. Look down in your Bibles at Psalm 57, according to do not destroy. Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. On his day will, will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David was hiding in caves, running from Saul, but David knew that it wasn't up to him to take vengeance into his own hands. This psalm is written, and the next few psalms deal with the theme of when we find ourselves in a cave. When you're in a cave, you're backed into a corner. You feel like you have very few options. Abishai thought he knew the option. Abishai thought, we just got to kill him. We just got to get aggressive. We got to take matters into our own hands. But David was committed to the do not destroy principle, leaving it to the Lord. And it's because David had that perspective. He was, he was, even though he was in a cave, he, he was given that perspective of being above the earth, higher than, than the heavens. A couple of notes about the structure of this uh, psalm. Uh, uh, verse 5 and verse 7 have this repeated chorus, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. There's also two aselas, which is a Hebrew musical term, uh, in verse 3 and in verse 6. Those two selahs really divide this psalm into three sections. Three, three sections that help us understand how we can move from the cave, from being trapped in a cave, to being above the earth and higher than the heavens as we seek shelter 
under the shadow of God's wings. Here's the first decision we have to make when we find ourselves in a cave, when we find ourselves trapped, when we feel like we have no other options. Here's the first decision we have to make. We have to make the decision that I will trust in God's purpose. I will trust in God's purpose. So David's there in a cave. He's sheltering in place. Uh, We're all familiar (laughs) with having to shelter in place. We sheltered in place uh, for quite some time because presumably the government was trying to protect us, right? And we sheltered in place. David is sheltering in place because he's trying to protect himself from the government, who also, the government also happened to be uh, his best friend's dad and his father-in-law. It was pretty complicated, and David had no choice but to hide out in this cave. And he cries out to God in verse 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. He says it twice. He says, in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. He's crying out for refuge, for shelter, for protection. He's crying out for mercy. But notice what his concern is. He says, in you my soul takes refuge. One of the telltale signs of spiritual maturity when we're going through difficulty, when we find ourselves in a cave, is that we are less concerned about our physical circumstances and more concerned about our soul. Notice how David says, in, my, in, in, in you, in my soul, do I take refuge in you. We can be so concerned about our finances or our physical health or what other people think about us or are saying about us, but God's heart and, and what our heart should be, the more our heart is aligned with his heart, our aim should be our soul. And that's what David is most concerned about. And then he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. You know, it's interesting how families, even from generation to generation, have certain uh, phrases or uh, words that, that are sort of unique to that family that get passed down from generation to generation. If you were to meet my parents, you'd hear that they use a lot of the same sort of words, the same language that, that I use, uh, uh, toodaloo, when you're saying a goodbye or, or good good uh, as just sort of a, a filler in conversation. These are things that I picked up from my parents. We all talk a little bit like our parents are the ones who taught us how to talk. And so we end up talking like our parents, and our parents talk like our grandparents, and so on and so forth. This metaphor of the shadow of your wings, David's uh, uh, grandparents were the first in the Bible to use that, use that phrase. This is part of sort of, uh, I guess they're his great-grandparents, Ruth and Boaz. And Ruth chapter 2, when Boaz uh, first lays eyes on Ruth, he, he talks about uh, how Ruth has, has been so courageous in moving from Moab and trusting in the Lord. And he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then Ruth turned around in chapter 3, verse 9, when she's kind of proposing to Boaz at midnight, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me, your servant, for you are a redeemer. These are the great-grandparents of of David. And chances are David just got got this phrase from, from them. 
And the really interesting thing is, is that these are David's great-grandparents, but then David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
And so David knew that what everything he was going through, that there was a purpose for it. This was going to help him be a better king, that he wasn't going to be a king like Saul. He wasn't going to be paranoid and chase around his enemies the way that Saul did. David knew that there was a purpose in his suffering. And again, the son of David, Jesus, the truly anointed king, there was purpose in his suffering. I mean, the whole reason why we're gathered right now around a cross is because there was purpose in the suffering of the son of David. And so us, again, we're not anointed kings and queens, but we're anointed in the Holy Spirit. And so we too can look at the suffering that David went through and see that there was a purpose. We can look through the suffering that Christ went through and see that there's a purpose. So we can look at whatever suffering we are facing and trust that there is a purpose. I was sitting in the cafe uh, earlier this morning with Richard Campbell. Richard, I told you you were going to be in the sermon this morning. I wasn't planning on this until this morning. But Richard told me, he says, I've never met a Christian who went down into the valley and then came up onto a mountain and at the end of that said, well, that was a waste of time. That's it. There is always a purpose. We always come out of the valley, we come up on the mountain and we understand. We may not see it perfectly clearly, we definitely might not have been able to see it in the valley, but when we get that perspective, we realize, yeah, I, I didn't wish for that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on my enemy, but I can see that there was a purpose in that. David says, I cry out to God most high, To God who fulfills his purpose for me, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those, shame him who tramples on me. Selah. He is the God most high in verse two, but he will send from heaven in verse three. He's the God most high. He's above and beyond, and yet he comes near. He sends from heaven, and he will trample those. Abishai wanted to trample Saul right then and there. But David was trusting in the Lord Most High. He was in the shadow of his wings and he knew that it was God's responsibility to take vengeance. That it was God who was going to trample those who were putting David to shame. You see, when we understand God's purpose, it changes the way that we the way that we look at things. You know, this this post-it note, it's really not very big, is it? Right? This is not a like compared to me, compared to this room, compared to the world, this post-it note is not very big. But it's all about perspective, isn't it? If the post-it note is right up in front of my face, if this is all I can see. Right? The post, this is the, the post-it note is the biggest thing in my life right now because it's right in front of my face. And sometimes our suffering is so right in front of us or the challenge that we're facing, it's just inescapable. And all we need to do is just to look up. That's all we need to do because all we see is this. And then all of a sudden I just look up and our whole perspective changes, doesn't it? But small things, little, little, tiny drops of water in the ocean of God's purpose 
can seem so majestic in our lives if we focus on them rather than focusing on God. So verse 3 right there in the middle is a, a selah. Selah sounds like the Hebrew word for lift up. And so uh, some scholars believe that it's like the, you know, the instruments, you know, lift up your hands from the instrument, take a rest, or to lift up the, the key. It's like a key change, or turn up the volume to 11, you know, like, turn it up. It, it, it's a transition point. It's a, it's a, a moment for reflection. And so here's, here's a sailor for us, for you. What's this for you right now? You know, you rolled out of bed this morning, this is the first thing you see. You're trying to have a conversation with your family, but this is just looming around. It's all, it's, it's ev- what, what is it that is on your mind right now? What is it that is causing you to lose tr- perspective? What, what struggle are you facing? What pressure are you under? And then ask yourself, what, what purpose does God have in allowing this to happen to me? So moving from the cave to the highest heaven involves trusting in God's purpose. Here's the second part. I will wait for God's plan. I will wait for God's plan. The second half of verse three, after the Selah says, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He will send out, he's gonna send from heaven and this is what he's sending, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The Hebrew word there for, for steadfast love is chesed. It's one word in Hebrew, but every time it's translated in English, it always has a, you know, a hyphenated compound, two or three English words all crammed together. You know, in King James, it's the loving kindness of God. The ESV translates it's the, the steadfast love of God. Uh, Old Testament scholar Daniel Bach defines chesed in this way. He says, hesed is one of those Hebrews words whose, whose meaning cannot be captured in one English word. This is a strong relational term that wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts. All the positive attributes of God, love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant, faithfulness. In short, this is not a short definition by the way, in short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. It's, it's what compels God to help us even though it doesn't benefit him at all. And it's the, the cluster of his love and mercy and grace and kindness and goodness. What a massive definition. So this is coming from the mind of one of the, one of the finest Old Testament scholars in our age. Let's go from the Old Testament scholar then to the children's author. This is how Sally Lloyd-Jones describes Hesed. It's God's never stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love.
And this is what God will send our way. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's worth waiting for. Waiting for God's plan. Going back to verse three, a steadfast love. The second word is faithfulness. That Hebrew word is amet. It's used all over the Bible to describe truth, stability, fairness, reliability, firmness, and trustworthiness. When Jethro was giving advice to Moses, when Moses is all stressed out because everyone's coming to him with his problems, Jethro says, find men of amet, men of fairness, men of trustworthiness, and then delegate the responsibility of judging these cases to them. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Hopefully he's coming quickly. Are you willing to wait? Because look at what's happening to David. Verse four, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. First Peter five says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. These fiery beasts, the beasts are not on fire. They're just passionate with anger. They're filled with rage. They're fired up. And wanting to destroy David. But look at what he zeroes in on. He says, The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. If you read the Psalms of David, you notice that David always ends up talking about people's mouths. He talks about the fiery beast, but he's not worried about the strong arms or the sharp claws. He zeroes in on the mouth, on the teeth, on the tongues. It's everywhere in the Psalms. David was the kind of guy, you know, he could handle himself. A bear, a lion, a giant, a massive Philistine army. He had no problem with hand-to-hand combat. It, he, well, there's, there's really no recollection of him being partic- particularly frightened in those kind of situations. And yet time and time again, what does David in, what troubles him the most are words. The quintessential tough guy of the Bible. Sticks and stones could not break David's bones, but names hurt him. The things that other people said struck him like Arrows, they were like spears, they were like sharp sword. David could handle a real sword, but a mouth, a tongue that was like a sword, that's what troubled David. You realize how much our words have power. Do you realize that our, our, our word, every time we open our mouths, we have the opportunity to, to speak life and refreshment and encouragement and joy and affirmation to other people. And that same mouth has the ability to bring discouragement and despair and depression and defeat. It's all in the power of the tongue. It's important for us to recognize in a world where there's so much talking, so much talking, and so much of it is not helping. And and could someone say of you that your mouth is, is like 
teeth of spears and a tongue of sharp swords. May it not be true of us, the people of God. And may we take shelter under the shadow of God's wings when we hear those kinds of things coming out of other people's mouths. Then verse 5 is the first repetition of the chorus. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. I'm in the cave, but God, you're above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Verse 6, he's still talking about these enemies. This is where we really get into God's plan here. It says, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. This is how David was feeling the, the net has been set. His soul is discouraged. He sees that there's no way out of the situation that is in. Verse 6, they dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. This is, this is wily coyote and roadrunner theology. The wily coyote, you know, sets up the... the the, the tightrope with the anvil and the giant pit and waiting for the roadrunner to run through. It seems like the roadrunners, they're done for now. And then also there's dynamite TNT involved and Wile E. Coyote is over and the, the dynamite thing's not working and the roadrunner runs by and Wile E. Coyote tries to figure out what happens and then the anvil falls on his head and he lands in the pit and he bounces off the off the, uh, the, the tightrope, and then he lands on the TNT box, and it explodes, and he explodes. That's what happens here. You got these people, and they're like, oh, we're digging this pit. This pit's for David. We're digging, and they're digging it deeper, and they're so excited. I can't wait to see David fall in, and then they fall in themselves, and this is the plan of God. So often, so often as Christians, we think, I need to take matters into my own hands. I need to defend myself. I need to correct this person. I need to do this or to do that. But so often, if you just give it enough time, the world falls into its own pit. Now that doesn't mean that we don't that doesn't mean that we're completely passive. Every time David had an opportunity to clarify his position and to let Saul know. I mean, he he didn't stab him. He took his spear and his jug and then he talked to Saul and said, Look, I could have killed you and I didn't. So stop chasing me around the wilderness. But eventually, Saul fell into his own pit. David didn't have to take actions into it. doesn't mean that David did nothing. David spoke the truth. But beyond that, he trusted in God's plan. He waited for them to fall into their own pit. There's another Selah there in verse 6. So for this Selah, for this rest, for this little pause, what is it in your life where you feel like you are charging ahead and God is just saying, just wait, just wait. Just trust that I have a plan for this. Just trust that, that I am in control here. 
David was so confident that this was going to happen that he's, he's describing verse six, that situation, like it's in the, first, in the past tense. He's, he's still in the cave, but he, he knows that this isn't going to end well for his enemies. Then in verse seven, he says, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. Oh, to have a steadfast heart. A heart that stays in the same place. That's what steadfast means. A heart that's determined and established and prepared and ready. Whether I'm in the cave or the valley or the mountaintop, my heart is in the same place. My heart is trusting in the Lord. My heart is steadfast. And then he says, I will sing. I will sing. So there's three decisions we need to make. I will trust in God's purpose. I will wait for God's plan. And then the third decision, and this is a decision, I will sing God's praise. I will sing God's praise. He says his heart is steadfast, and then his heart tells his mouth to sing. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the mouth sings. I love the song that we sing here at church. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy. All my days, yes, I will. Praise is a decision. It's a choice. He's, it's right there. I will sing and make melody. He says, awake my glory. He says, awake the harp and the lyre. He says, get the instruments going. You see the musicians start to exit because they feel like, I think think we're going to have to sing in a moment. He's quoting a song. And so that's, that's what David, he's getting fired up. He's like, start vamping. Get the keys going. Start building on the guitar. Let's sing. Awake my glory. Awake harp and lyre. And then he says, I will awake the dawn. If you can't think of a reason to worship this morning, how about the fact that the sun came up? I mean, our whole lives have just been like totally thrown out of whack in the last two or three years, right? Everything, education, politics, family events, medicine, government, how we think about everything, they've been totally topsy Everything is up, upside down. But you know what? One thing that didn't change over the, ever since March of 2020, you know what? The sun came up every single day. Every single day. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and Love The fact that the sun came up, awaken the dawn. If you can't think of a reason to praise God, I can give you lots of reasons, but if you can't, just the fact that the sun came up. Speaking of the sun, when we think about awakening the dawn, it just seems like, oh, the sun came up, right? It's just like this light bulb in, you know, in a blue ceiling up there. No, that light bulb, that is a sphere of burning gas that is 149 million kilometers away from us, and yet we can feel its warmth. 
That is a sphere of burning gas that's 5,500 degrees Celsius on its surface and 5.5 million degrees Celsius at its core. Awaken the dawn. How does dawn work? We're also on a sphere, not a sphere of burning gas, but a sphere of water and land and oxygen, and we're on this sphere. We're hurtling through space. We're orbiting that that ball of gas at 108,000 kilometers an hour, and that, that hurtling at that speed, and we're rotating, which is how dawn happens. The sun doesn't come up. The earth just spins. The earth is spinning at 1,600 kilometers an hour. Awaken the dawn to simply recognize that God is orchestrating and designed all of these things with a purpose and with a plan, and that should cause us to praise Verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. I will give thanks. Romans chapter 1 says that the, 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 the way all of the evil of humanity, it started, Romans 1 tells us, because they did not honor God or give thanks to him. Thankfulness is at the core of our discipleship. Thankfulness is at the core of what it means as creatures to relate to God as our creator. Furthermore, as those who have been redeemed by the the mercy of God shown to us on the cross, thankfulness is how we relate to God, not just as our creator, but as our savior, and as our provider, and as our protector. So to be in the habit, the regular discipline of giving thanks to God. And notice that our worship becomes a witness. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. And I wonder if as Christians, if as the world's been turned all upside down, and as everyone is using their tongues like swords and like spears, and people are complaining about this, and spitting vitriol about that, and, and shouting at one another over here, I wonder if as Christians, are we joining in with the chorus of the world, or are we singing God's praise? Because what we're supposed to do is to give thanks among the peoples and praise among the nations. That yes, the whole world can be complaining and spitting vitriol and name-calling and doing everything that's, that's happening in our world. We should stand out and say, you know what? Some of those things are true. I share a lot of those same concerns, but let me tell you what I'm thankful for. Let me tell you what I'm praising my creator and my savior about. Or are we just like the rest of the world? Are we standing out? Is our worship a witness Verse 10, for your steadfast love, there's that word again, your chesed is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And then verse 11, again, he starts in the cave and this is where he ends. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David could have done a lot of things with his mouth but he chose to have a mouth that gives thanks to God. He chose to have a mouth that sings praises to God. And he chose to have a mouth in verse 11 to say, be exalted, O God, above the heavens and to let your glory be over all the earth. Loved ones, do you trust that God has a purpose for whatever you're going through or whatever we're facing?
Are you waiting for God's plan to be unfolded? to be unfolded before your eyes? And are you praising God while you trust him and while you wait on him? That is how we go from the cave to higher than the highest heaven and to focus on a glory that is above all of the earth. Let's pray together. Our heavenly father, God, we thank you that you brought David through this low valley so that we could read a psalm like this and so that we too could understand your plan and your purpose for us and so that we can be encouraged to sing your praise. God, I pray that you would help us not to rush ahead. God, I pray that we would not try to take vengeance or justice into our own hands, but to trust that you have a good purpose, to trust that you are carrying out your plan, Lord, and that we would focus on you and all of your glory and your worthiness and that we would exalt you with our lives, that we would choose to worship you even in the midst of difficulty. Lord, we pray for your favor and grace to be on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's